Section 5 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3, The Adventure and the Goal, Part 1. What youth of gallant spirit and royal ambitions could turn a deaf ear to the invitation which was laid before Frederick at his court at Palermo? Here were high adventure and romantic effort, perilous journeyings, and a great prize for goal. The soft arms of his wife, who pleaded with him not to leave her and her babe for so dangerous a quest, the discouragement of the Sicilian nobles who had no love for Germany and no desire to see their kingdom become a mere appanage of the German crown, were powerless to combat the allurements of the new enterprise. High destiny called Frederick to the throne of the Caesars, and with a stout heart but a scanty following, he started on his journey northwards in the March of 1212. It was natural and seemly that the young king should seize the opportunity offered by his northward voyage to proceed to Rome, and there pay his respects to his guardian, the Pope. Accordingly, he sailed from Palermo to Ostia, stopping only once on the journey at Gaeta, and made his way up the Tiber to Rome. The meeting which followed between Frederick and Innocent seemed of happy augury for the future peace of Christendom. The youthful monarch was complacent and respectful. The venerable pontiff was benevolent and affectionate. Frederick placed his hands between those of Innocent in token of vassalage, and acceded to various claims to lands in Sicily which were put forward by the Pope. In return, he was supplied with a store of money to help him in his wanderings. There seemed no trace of that enmity which had so long raged between Pope and Hohenstaufens, and the interests of the two appeared to be identical. The young adventurer was eager to secure the power that his fathers had held before him, and Innocent was fondly anticipating the accession of an emperor who should overthrow the disobedient Otto and himself become the grateful and dutiful son of Mother Church. After a few weeks' sojourn in Rome, Frederick continued on his way. The path now was beset with perils. Northern Italy was sown thickly with Guelphic towns, who were the partisans of Otto, and his landward passage across the Arno was barred by the powerful city of Pisa. Fortunately, however, Genoa was sure to embrace the cause with which Pisa was at strife, and four Genoese galleys were sent to convey Frederick to their city, which was the northernmost point of his journey which he could reach by sea. The Pisans sent out galleys in their turn to rout their Genoese enemies and capture the emperor-elect, but the convoy safely eluded them and reached Genoa on the 1st of May. Here he was entertained for more than two months, while his partisans in Lombardy were endeavoring to ensure him a safe passage into Germany. It was impossible for him to proceed directly across the Alps by the most direct road, Milan, most implacable enemy of the Hohenstaufens, lay in that route, and several other hostile cities. He must march by devious ways, therefore, proceeding from one friendly town to another, and giving his enemies as wide a berth as possible. He accordingly set out from Genoa, accompanied by the Marquis of Montferrat and the Marquis of Este, 
two Lombard nobles who had joined him there, and made for Pavia. A royal reception was accorded him in this city, and he rode in triumphal procession through its streets with a canopy borne above his head. Cremona was his next objective, but the path there was a perilous one. It lay between Milan and Piacenza, both bitterly hostile to the Hohenstaufen race. He was compelled to go stealthily by night, escorted half the way by an escort of Pavians, and then handed over to a body of Cremonese soldiers. He escaped death or capture by less than an hour, for before he had left his Pavian friends two miles behind, they were attacked by a strong force of Milanese and completely routed. He gained Cremona in safety and was received with every evidence of friendship. He was then passed on to Mantua and escorted from there to Verona. The Veronese citizens conducted him northwards as far as the borders of Bavaria, and then left him to proceed on his journey with the little handful of followers that now remained with him. He had accomplished the passage of Italy without mishap, and was now on the threshold of Germany. Here there was Odo to be reckoned with, for the excommunicated emperor had hurried back into Germany when he heard of Frederick's election, and his remaining supporters had rallied around him. Frederick advanced into Bavaria as far as Trient, and then received alarming news of Odo's proximity. It was impossible for him to advance further in that direction, and equally impossible to a youth of Frederick's mettle to slink back into Italy. He chose the only remaining alternative, turning sharply aside to the west, and commenced an arduous march through the almost untrodden passes of the Alps. Fortunately, it was late summer, and the hardships of cold were not so overwhelming as they might have been, but it was a perilous enough venture across the trackless alpine snows, and it must have been with a glad heart that he reached Kur in his ancestral duchy of Schwabia. He was there joined by two high dignitaries of the neighborhood, the Bishop of Kur and the Abbot of St. Gall, and his slender retinue was reinforced by a band of sixty knights. The courage and resolution he had so far displayed was again exercised in the next move. The mighty city of Constance lay to his north, and its bishop was undecided whether to support the Hohenstaufen or the Gwelf. News was brought to Frederick that Otto was making hot haste toward the city, hoping by arriving first to decide the wavering bishop in his favor and arrest the progress of his rival. Had he succeeded, the way north would have been closed to Frederick, and with his handful of followers he would have been driven back into Italy by Otto's forces. The young king of Sicily, however, had no mind to see his venture close so disastrously. Immediately the news reached him of Otto's intention, he made a dash for Constance. Otto's lackeys had already arrived and had been admitted, but their master was three leagues behind. Frederick thundered at the gates an appeal to the ancient loyalty of Constance to the house of Schwabia. The abbot of St. Gall seconded his persuasions, and at length, after much parleying and hesitation, the bishop decided to espouse the cause of the grandson of Barbarossa. Odo arrived some three hours afterwards with a force of three hundred knights to find the gates closed in his face, and his rivals safely lodged within the city's walls. This rapid move 
one Frederick the Empire. Odo, seeing in the Hohenstaufen success at Constance a more serious reverse to his own cause than is easily apparent, disbanded his army and retreated into the north. Frederick's way was henceforth no longer a perilous adventure but a triumphal progress. He marched to Baal and was joined there by several princes and nobles, some eager to offer their services, many eager to sell them. From Baal he advanced northwards to the Hohenstaufen stronghold of Hagenau, which had fallen into the hands of Odo's partisans and quickly reduced it to surrender. All who flocked to his support or had taken a hand in his election received lavish rewards. The king of Bohemia, the archbishop of Mayence, the bishop of Metz and Speyer, the bishop of Worms, and many lesser supporters obtained welcome grants and gifts. He now proceeded to strengthen his position by a foreign alliance which might be of great service should Odo prove a more formidable enemy than was anticipated by the Hohenstaufen party. He accordingly marched to Vaucouleurs on the French boundary, and there held a conference with the eldest son of Philip Augustus. The outcome of the meeting was that Frederick promised to make no peace with Odo or his supporter, John of England, without the consent of Philip. The French monarch in return engaged to aid Frederick if such aid should become necessary, and in earnest of his goodwill, presented the young emperor-elect with the princely sum of twenty thousand marks. With an equally royal munificence, Frederick ordered the sum to be distributed among the princes of the empire, and thereby earned loud praises for his generosity. His next move was to Mayence, where he held his first diet, and received the homage of as many of the princes as were present. The end of this year, whose beginning had witnessed the departure of the boy king of Sicily on his dangerous venture, now saw the consummation of his hopes and the prize of his daring. On December 5th, 1212, a great assembly gathered at Frankfurt. The spiritual and temporal electors of Germany, the envoys of the king of France, the papal legate, and a band of five thousand knights with one voice acclaimed Frederick as their king and emperor. He was conducted to the old cathedral and there crowned by the Archbishop of Mayence. From the position of a petty king, he was now elevated, at the age of eighteen years, to that of the first monarch of the world, the successor of Charlemagne and the Caesars, the temporal head of Christ's kingdom on earth. The claim implied by the last title was, it is true, not one that could be practically carried into effect. It was a claim that was suffered because it was never actively asserted. Actually, the position of the emperor in relation to the other kings of Europe was that of primus inter pares. He was the senior monarch of Christendom, and not the overlord of all other monarchs. Nevertheless, that there was such a theoretical supremacy, and that it was generally recognized, is demonstrated by the words of the English chronicler, Roger de Wendover, who speaks of Frederick as the emperor who was, as it were, the lord and governor of the whole world. In any case, it was a proud enough position to be held by a youth who in the early days of his infancy had been dependent for his existence upon the charity of the burghers of Palermo. 
the territories over which he was now the suzerain were wider in extent than the total areas of the kingdoms of england scotland france and christian spain the lands of the empire comprised the whole of modern germany austria and holland the greater part of belgium a portion of france extending westwards as far as the rhone which was known as the kingdom of arles and the northern half of italy the kings of poland and hungary were tributary monarchs the island of sicily and the southern half of italy were frederick's by hereditary right sardinia cyprus and the kingdom of jerusalem were added during his reign the title of emperor was therefore no empty one at this time though frederick was the last to enjoy an effective control over the wide territories that were attached to the imperial crown frederick spent the next two years twelve thirteen and twelve fourteen in travelling through his dominions and subduing the remaining partisans of his deposed rival otto at his side were nearly all the great magnates of germany dukes prelates counts margraves and landgraves he proved himself most grateful to his supporters and continued to be lavish with his favours as yet he showed no signs of disappointing the pope's conception of him as a dutiful son of mother church in july twelve thirteen he issued an instrument which must have given considerable satisfaction to innocent he acknowledged the services which rome had rendered him and he surrendered various rights which the crown had long exercised over the church in sicily he gave up ancona spoleto ravenna and other territories in central italy to enlarge the patrimony of st peter he ceded certain lands in tuscany the estates of the countess matilda which had long been a cause of dispute between popes and emperors lastly he took the oath of obedience to rome in the presence of the german princes End of section five.